Please turn in God's word to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12. We are in the middle of the segment of Jesus being questioned by a variety of different religious leaders. And uh, tonight we see him being questioned uh, by a Pharisee. So please uh, turn to Mark 12. It's found on page 1168 of the Pew Bible. And we're reading verses 28 to 34. Let's listen to God's word. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandments greater than these. And so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbors as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. But when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Have you ever found yourself in Bloomington being so close and yet, so far. The other day, I was driving to someone's house, and as I could see the road their house was situated on, but in between was the railway line. I was so close, but yet so far, I would have to drive back and find another road that would take me over the railway line, over the tracks, before I could get to their house. Today, I just heard my children saying uh, that they were uh, so close and yet so far as we drove past a restaurant in town. Maybe some of you children think this same when you drive past your favorite restaurant, so close and yet so far when you know your parents well. Well, in our passage, we read of a man who is so close and yet so far, for Jesus described him as not being far from the kingdom of God. This man was a religious man. He knows the truth. Uh, by looking at his lifestyle, you would think he was a believer. And yet Jesus says that he is not in the kingdom of God. He is close, but he is not in the kingdom. And that's a challenge for you this evening. What makes you think that you are part of Christ's kingdom? There are many people in churches who are like this man. They may look Christian. They may read their Bibles. They may go to church every Sunday. They may have Christian parents. They are not far from the kingdom, but they have not yet arrived. So what does it take to be in the kingdom of God? And so I want you to notice to be in the kingdom of God, you have to love God, you have to love your neighbor, and this you can only do when you're trusting in Jesus Christ, your king. So firstly, be wary of attempting to be right with God by keeping the law Verse 28, so Jesus has been in debate with the religious leaders ever since he cleared the temple 
from the money changers and the stall holders. And they asked him where his authority came from. They challenged him on whether it is right to pay taxes to Caesar. They asked him about the validity of the resurrection. And their goal in these questions was to discredit him from the crowd, so the crowd would turn against him, and to also get him in trouble with the Roman authorities, so they would get rid of him. But because Jesus responded so well to the Sadducees' question about the resurrection, we read of the approval of one particular Pharisee. For though the Pharisees were united with the Sadducees in their opposition to Jesus, the Pharisees opposed the Sadducees on this issue of the resurrection. And so they would have to agree with Jesus when he told the Sadducees that they were greatly mistaken. Hughes says this man found himself applauding Jesus. He is so impressed that he brings to Jesus another question. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that he asked this particular question to test Jesus. Yes, he was still trying to catch Jesus out, but he also brings to Jesus a legitimate question about what is the greatest commandment. This is a question that the Pharisees loved to debate about. They believed the law contained 613 commandments, but they wanted to be able to say which one was the greatest, which one was most important. And they enjoyed the intellectual conversation that it would bring. And you can imagine one Pharisee saying, well, you must tithe everything right down to the herbs in your garden. That's most important because that shows your devotion to God. Another might say, no, no, it's keeping the sacrifices. It's worshiping God in the right way. That's what's most important. While another may say, no, it's, it's being moral. It's demanding justice for those not receiving justice. That's the greatest commandment. And they would debate about which one is most important. And it's not that different today. Different churches emphasizing different parts of the law. My kids like to play the card game Trumps, where you battle out a particular category. It could be the deadliest animals, or the fastest cars, or the cutest pets. And what you want in your hand is to have the Trump card. So when you play it, you beat your opponent. Well, the religious leaders were doing something similar with God's law. They thought, give us the most important law, the Trump law, and that is what we will play to win the game, to enter the kingdom. Hughes, in his commentary, speaks of how Rabbi Hillel was promised by a Gentile that he would convert if Hillel could give him the whole law while he stood on one foot. Well, Hillel answered with a version of the golden rule, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. And so this is the type of answer that the Pharisee here was looking for. 613 laws were just too many to measure yourself against. But if they worked out which one was the most important and following and obeying God, well, that would make it easier. What does God really want from us so we can be right with him, so we can be sure of entering his kingdom? That question is still as relevant today. Many people are searching for the one thing that God wants from them. We think if we knew what that is, then we would be right with God. 
That's a good question. And Jesus gives us the answer to this question. And so secondly, you are to have a wholehearted devotion to God, verses 29 to 30. So Jesus begins his answer by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now these are familiar words. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is known as the Shema, where Moses reminds the Israelites of God's law. All Jews would know this verse. Committed Jews would recite this verse morning and evening. Some would even wear it inside a small leather box on their forehead or on their wrist. They would hang it on their doorways inside a small round box. It was like a creed. And the Shema summed up God's law, that you are to love God. So it's not to fulfill a particular ritual. It's not to live in a certain way. It's not to give something to make God happy. No, it is a command to love God. Well, why would you love God? Well, the Shema reveals who God is. We read that the Lord is our God. And Lord is in capital letters. That speaks of the covenant God of Yahweh. He makes a covenant to his people to be their God and they would be his people. This is a commitment that he honors. He has promised to look after them. The Shema describes God as the Lord is one. And this speaks of the uniqueness of God. There is only one God. You can't have a God for this and a God for that. You can't worship the true God on Sunday and then the money God or the sports God the rest of the week. No, there is one God. He is the covenant God who has created us, who has sustained us, who redeems us. He is the one who we are to give an account to. He is the God who the Israelites are to respond in love. For he graciously rescued them from Egypt before he gave them this law. And the people love him by keeping his law. And likewise, God has promised to rescue you, his people, from the enemy of sin and death. He likewise gives you this commandment to show your love for him. As Rich said this morning, this command to love God would encompass the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. That is how you are to live your life, a love that is seen in obedience. But it's also a wholehearted love, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It speaks of loving God with every part of our being. Now, often when we think of love, we think of an emotional love, a love that tends to be fickle, that runs hot or cold. No, this is to be a constant love a love that is faithful, a love that puts God first. He is a jealous God, and so there is to be no other. He is to be loved exclusively. And this love for God affects every decision you make, for it should be out of love for him. Ferguson says, Jesus' answer emphasized the fact that God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. That is because God is wholehearted in his love for us. He is committed in loving you, and so you are to love him in return. I've shared this illustration from Christianity Explored before. A young man, he proposes to his girlfriend saying, darling, I want you to know that I love you more than anything else in this world. 
will you marry me? I know I'm not rich, I don't have a big house or a beautiful car like Jeffrey Brown, but I do love you with all my heart. And the young woman replies, I love you, but tell me more about Jeffrey Brown. <laughs> the love of the woman is not wholehearted, but that often describes us. And so, no, you are to love God wholeheartedly. You are to commit your life to him. And throughout history, we have seen many examples of those who have done just that. Yesterday, as a family, we were watching Torchlighters, and we were watching the story of Perpetua. This was a woman who lived in Carthage in North Africa during the Roman Empire. And Perpetua was this affluent young mother, and she was charged with converting to Christianity. She's sent to prison without her child, but alongside her slaves, who were also believers. And her freedom would be secured easily if she simply offered one pinch of incense in honor to the Roman gods. But her love for God would not allow her to do that. She knew she'd be martyred because of her love for God. But she also knew that she would have victory over death and enjoy eternal life in heaven. And so she died in that arena, a slow and gruesome death that was a witness of, to others of her love for God. And this had a massive influence on others. Now, it's unlikely that we are called to martyrdom because of our love for God. But what costs are you willing to bear for you to fulfill this greatest commandment to love God? So the greatest commandment is to love God. And Jesus also gives us a second you are to love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. You are to love others. And again, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from Leviticus 19. And this command is really an expansion of loving God. For love for God will mean that you love others. John spoke of this in his letter, 1 John 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So Jesus tells us how we are to love others. You are to love others as you love yourselves. Now that's not an encouragement for you to indulge in yourself. No, naturally, we are good at loving ourselves. We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. We keep ourselves warm. We keep ourselves alive. That is a love that you are to show others. Yesterday, I was reading an account of a British airman who was shot down in World War II over Nazi Germany. Most of the rest of his crew had died in the crash. He was left uh, injured, and he was soon captured. And he was still in his RAF uniform when he was taken to a railway station in northern Germany, accompanied by an elderly guard. Well, an angry mob saw this British airman, and they were looking for revenge after the devastating Dambusters raid that had occurred just days earlier that destroyed much of the Ruhr Valley. And this mob advanced toward this British airman, while his elderly guard quickly disappeared. But just in time, a young German soldier emerged from the waiting room and pointed his gun at his own countrymen. He shouted at them several times to back off. And this German soldier then helped the man onto the train, sat with him, and gave him cigarettes and chocolate. 
Well, this is the love that you are to show others, even to your enemies. You are to love them as you love yourself. Ferguson writes, we have a special motive for caring for others as members of the kingdom of God. We know something about people they may not even know about themselves. They were made to reflect God's image and glory. Even when that image has been distorted in their lives, we love them because we see what they were meant to be and are moved with compassion. And so you are to recognize that others are made in God's image. And that starts from the little child in the mother's womb to the elderly person. That is who you are to love. Luke's gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan, comes after this question when the Pharisee asks, who is my neighbor? And so we see we are to show love to everyone. The Pharisees, they were so focused on the law that they had no heart for people. They were too concerned about their law keeping. And that can be a danger for us too. You know, you're called to love others. That can be difficult. People can be hard to love. But that is the command that we are to heed here. The remaining six of the Ten Commandments help us to understand what this love looks like for those commandments are focusing on others. So you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, fourthly, notice you can be close, but yet so far. The Pharisee, like Jesus' answer, you are right, is better put as beautifully said teacher. The Pharisee is impressed. Jesus, this teacher from Galilee, has given the best answer to this ongoing debate. Now, in some ways, what this man has just said is absurd. It's like a child saying to an adult, well done in being able to recite the alphabet. And so it is telling off this man's opinion of Jesus. He does not see him as God. Yes, he agrees with Jesus that God is one and there is no other but him. He agrees with Jesus' summary of the law, to love God, to love your neighbor. He even sees loving God is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's quite a statement when they are just yards from the temple and the focus of the temple is all about this ritual performance. But he recognized that the sacrifices without love is simply going through the motions. And that's frequently mentioned by the prophets in the Old Testament. And we'll see that in our next Psalm, Psalm 51. God instead wants a contrite heart rather than burnt offerings. We need to be careful that we don't do the same, that we're not simply going through our Christian routine without giving it any thought. Instead, we are to be loving God and loving others. Well, Jesus commends the man by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This Pharisee was able to acknowledge what Jesus said was true, and he was able to admit this despite the fact that he was surrounded by his fellow Pharisees and also the Sadducees. Jesus, too, he recognized how this man had answered wisely. No wonder Jesus says he is not far from the kingdom of God. But he is not there yet. He is close. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, he is close but no cigar. And this phrase, close but no cigar, I found out recently comes from carnivals traveling around the country. They would have various games and competitions. If you won a game, the prize was a cigar. If you're close to winning, well, you're not close enough to claim the prize. Close, but no cigar. 
And sadly, that is a description for many who think that they are believers. And it certainly describes this man. For while he is close, he is not in the kingdom. There is no prize. The kingdom of God is more than right answers. The kingdom is about Christ the King. And so finally, you're to notice and recognize Christ the King of the kingdom. And in him you can love God and love others. So to be part of a kingdom, you have to submit to the king. To become a citizen of the UK, you have to take the oath of allegiance. I swear by Almighty God that on becoming a British citizen, I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to his majesty, King Charles III, his heirs and successors, according to the law. And I will give my loyalty to the United Kingdom and respect its rights and freedoms. I will uphold its democratic values. I will observe its laws faithfully and fulfill my duties and obligations as a British citizen. So to be a citizen of the United Kingdom, you have to submit to the king. Well, likewise, this man, to be in the kingdom, yes, he has to love God. Yes, he has to love his neighbor. But he has to recognize that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He had to acknowledge Jesus' authority, which Jesus continually demonstrated throughout his ministry. Did this Pharisee come into the kingdom? Did he submit to Christ the king? Well, we're not told. He was close, but until he is in the kingdom, he is far away. And that is true for any here who have not submitted to Christ the king. Even the fact that you are here shows you are close. You're hearing the truth. But if you have not trusted in Christ as your king, well, then you are far away. The end of verse 34, we get this abrupt ending. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And it's not simply that Jesus had answered all their questions or that they were unable to defeat him with all of their tests. No, it's that they saw that Jesus was a threat not just to their livelihoods, but now to themselves. They saw how one of their own was nearly converted because of Jesus' answers. And so they are in danger of being persuaded. G.K. Chesterton says, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, but it has been found demanding, and so not tried. Jesus was placing demands on these Pharisees, and so they stop questioning. They are not far from the kingdom, but they are not close, for they are unwilling to recognize Jesus as king. They would not submit to him. And so this passage is a warning, but this passage is also an encouragement, for this man was not far from the kingdom of God. And maybe that is you. And so I encourage you to take another look at Christ Consider him as your king. Now, often when we think of kings, we don't tend to think too favorably of them. Maybe I've been living in a republic for too long now. Well, often kings are seen as selfish. They use their position for their own needs, paid for by the people's taxes. But a good king, a good king is one who wants to see his people flourish, who provides for their needs, who protects them from their enemies. Well, Jesus is a good king. He protects you from your enemies. 
He provides for you. And that is seen explicitly when it comes to this commandment. There is no way that you can keep this command perfectly. You're not in a position to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will never fully love your neighbor as yourself. And so you should see how far short you fall. But your king, he has provided for you in this. Jesus sees your greatest need. And so that's why he came into this world for those who could not keep this greatest commandment. For he has kept all the commandments. He was perfectly obedient. And so he gives to his people his righteousness. The sacrifices that were happening nearby in the temple, well, that pointed to his sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice that he would make in just a few days' time. He would sacrifice his life by dying on a cross to cover the sins of you and me not keeping the greatest commandment. And so Jesus is the king who does this for his people. That's why you want to be part of his kingdom. That's why you want to submit to him. He brings you into his kingdom. He gives you the grace and strength to keep these laws. He gives you new hearts to love him and to love your neighbor. So to be in the kingdom of God, you have to love God and love your neighbor. And this you can only do when you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your king. Well, what a great reminder as we come to the table. Just ponder who your king is and renew your love and your devotion to him. This passage had a massive influence on one of the greatest evangelists that this world has ever known. John Wesley, from an early age, devoted himself to a life of religious living, even preaching the gospel. He traveled from England to America to preach to the Native Americans. But the trip was described as a disaster. He wrote, I went to America to convert the Indian but oh, who shall convert me? His time in the States helped him to see his sinfulness and his unbelief. But on the way back to England, he was in the company of Moravian Christians whose simple faith made an impact on his life. And so he became convinced of his unbelief. Then on the morning of May 24th, 1738, Wesley opened his Bible and opened to Mark 12. And he saw this verse, 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, Wesley took this verse as an encouragement. Yes, he recognized his unbelief, but he also saw that he was close to the kingdom. That evening, Wesley went to meet with a group of Christians who were reading Paul's letter to the Romans. Wesley arrived about a quarter before nine while the preacher was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me. And so Wesley was now in the kingdom. And God would use him to preach thousands of sermons to thousands of people who themselves would enter the kingdom. And so Wesley is a warning that it is possible to be so close and yet so far. But he is also an encouragement to respond to the truth. That Jesus Christ is your king. He's come into this world to bring you into his kingdom. So to be in the kingdom, you have to have a love for God and a love for your neighbor. And this you can only do by trusting in Jesus Christ, your king. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have commanded us to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet we have to admit we have fallen far short of this command. Our love is not wholehearted. Often it is lukewarm. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have kept this commandment. In him we have the forgiveness for breaking this commandment. In him we are in the kingdom. And so in response to his work in our lives, that our love for you would grow, that our love for others would grow, and that we would continually submit to Christ the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Psalm 51D. Psalm 51D, David the psalmist is coming in repentance to God for his sin, and he's looking to God to renew his heart. He recognizes that God wants not sacrifices, but a contrite heart, and this only Christ can do. And so that's why our trust is in him. And so in response to this, God will delight in our sacrifices for him. So let's sing Psalm 51D.